Well, good morning, Ventura. It's a pleasure to be able to preach this morning. And, you know, there's something that I've uh, discovered in my life recently that uh, I've recognized as a problem. And I never really recognized this as a problem until just over the last, you know, few weeks or a month. Now, this problem, even though I didn't recognize it, was something that was affecting my work. It affected the way that I drove. It affected the way that, uh, that I would dress. It affected all sorts of aspects of my life. But I was blind to it for a long period of time until all of a sudden I started seeing the same pattern again and again and again. And so I still haven't figured out the root cause of what's going on, though I'm trying to pay attention to it. The problem is that in about the majority of my dress shirts, I've started developing this hole in my left elbow. There's in about six of my shirts, all of them have this size rip in the left elbow. And I've been trying to figure it out. I'm trying to understand, you know, what has caused it. There was one day recently at work, I put the dress shirt on in the the morning, didn't notice any kind of hole. As the day went on, halfway through my shift at work, I look, and there's a hole in the dress shirt. I have no idea why. I don't know what caused it. Now, I bring that up, hoping that, especially, you know, if you see this, and I just, you know, I do have other shirts I could have worn, but I did this just for uh, the illustration. But... um, (laughs) But I hope that, you know, if you see this during the sermon, you'll, you'll think about the reason I bring this up. The, the series that we're going through right now is on Thanksgiving. This is, you know, week two of three on a topic of Thanksgiving, obviously something that we tend to hear around this time of year. And as we consider the topic of Thanksgiving, I think each of us knows what it's like to wake up with a thankless heart to go about our days, and we find ourselves grumbling. And we wonder, how did I get there? What caused that? Why is there a pattern of ingratitude in my life? And we find that this impacts so many different facets of how we live. It impacts the way that we work. It impacts the way that we dress. It impacts the way that we drive, the way that we interact with people, the things that we say, how we think. But we may not be able to identify immediately what is causing that thanklessness and how do I go about being grateful. So um, I encourage you to be pondering that today. And let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we enter into this time of worship through the proclamation of your word, I pray that our ears would be open to hear what you have to say to us because your word speaks. Lord, your word is to be over us. We are not to be over your word. Your word is to direct us. We are not to direct your word. And so I pray that as we dig into your word this morning, I pray that our hearts would be directed. I pray that we would recognize the reasons why we are to give you thanks and not to grumble. And none of us has an excuse to grumble. 
Help us to see your glory today, we pray in Christ's name. I'm going to be preaching this morning from Psalm 103, and I'm just going to read through the passage. I think it's helpful for us to orient ourselves in that way, and you can feel free to turn there while I read. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his ministers, his Ministers who do his will, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In today's sermon, I will be addressing three primary areas regarding thanksgiving. We will look at thanksgiving as it relates firstly to the character of God. Secondly, as it relates to the character of man. And finally, as it relates to the work of God in salvation. Now, we're going to spend much of our time in Psalm 103, but we're going to look at other passages related to Thanksgiving to see how the Bible addresses this topic. In Psalm 103, David begins by commanding his soul to bless the Lord. David directs his soul to a reverent worship of God. In the book of Psalms, we have various types of songs, penitence, lament, complaint, wisdom, thanksgiving, and royal songs. This diversity illustrates that we can and should approach God in more than a single way in prayer, and it indicates that there is no category of life 
that is off limits in prayer to God. If we're sad, we can lament to God. If we're happy, we can rejoice in God. If we're repentant, we can confess to God. This means that our prayers ought to reflect something of what's going on in our lives and hearts. It also means that we should be coming to God with various types of prayers, not only repentance, not only lament, not only praise. Rather, our lives should be marked by a mixture of these kinds of prayers because we have varied concerns that we need to bring to God. We must examine ourselves and see how we are praying to God. Nonetheless, while our prayers reflect something of our lives and ourselves, they ought to show forth more of who God is than who we are. David begins by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, but not because David's soul is the focus of this psalm. The emphasis is not, O my soul, the emphasis is bless the Lord. This emphasis becomes clearer as David commands his own soul to bless the name of the Lord. Names in the Bible are more than mere placeholders of identification by which we can recognize one person as distinct from another. Names were chosen based on their meaning. Abram's name was changed to Abraham from exalted father to father of a multitude because of the everlasting covenant God had made with him to bless him and make him exceedingly fruitful. Adam named his wife Eve, which means life, give, life giver. There are countless other examples. Names, therefore, were associated with someone's characteristics and even their relationship with God. Additionally, name in the Bible is often a reference not to a particular word, but rather to the whole of someone's character, which is why Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is to be chosen rather than choice silver or great riches. The name Lord in all caps as used throughout Psalm 103 does not come from the Hebrew word Adonai, which is also translated Lord, but is spelled with a capital L and then a lowercase O-R-D. Rather, the name Lord in all caps as used here comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh, which focuses intensely on the nature of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness and love, as exemplified perhaps most clearly in Psalm 89. And I'll read the first five verses. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. The three interconnected terms of faithfulness and steadfast love and covenant are associated in Psalm 89 with the covenantal character of Yahweh. 
we see some of this very same terminology manifested throughout Psalm 103 as David uses the term steadfast love in verses 4, 8, 11, and 17 in connection with the name Yahweh. Further, Yahweh is of particular importance in the context of covenant faithfulness. John Piper points out, quote, The Hebrew name Yahweh is connected to the Hebrew verb, I am. So Yahweh is most fundamentally the one who is. I am who I am is the most foundational meaning of Yahweh. It means my amness comes from my amness. My existence from my being, my, my existence from my existence, my being from my being. No beginning, no ending, no dependence. He simply is, always was, and always will be. He communicates all of this with a personal name, end quote. The reason this matters so much in the context of covenantal language is because covenants only last as long as the people fulfilling the covenant are alive, This is Paul's point at the start of Romans 7. Marriage is till death do you part because the covenant exists only as long as the people making that covenant remain alive. Once one of them dies, the covenant is dissolved and they are no longer man and wife. When God makes an everlasting covenant, he establishes it not on the basis of something transient or created. He establishes it on the basis of his own nature and character. For example, God established an everlasting covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 in which God declared he would never again flood the earth to destroy it. God established an everlasting covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17 to make him the father of a multitude. And God established an everlasting covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish David's throne forever. In each of these instances, God is promising something that can only be fulfilled if God himself is eternal. Noah could not guarantee the covenant because he would die 350 years after the flood. Abraham could not guarantee the covenant because he would barely live long enough to have the promised son, Isaac. David could not guarantee the covenant because the Messiah would come hundreds of years after David died. This David is using the revealed name of God in Psalm 103 that most clearly connects with the eternal promises God had made because intrinsic to the name Yahweh is I am who I am, the self-existent and eternal one. Now, why have I spent so much time drawing this out? It is because David says in verse 17 that the steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. This means that God's steadfast covenant love lies eternally in front of and eternally behind his children. And we know that God can provide such eternal love because his self-existent nature enables him to do so. Gerhardus Voss, a theologian from the 20th century, commented this glorious truth. Quote, The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. End quote. 
That's what it means for God to love us from everlasting to everlasting. Therefore, it is in connection with the eternal and covenantal character of God that David says, bless Yahweh, O my soul. This leads us to question then what it means to bless the one from whom all of the psalmist's blessings and ours come. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Thus, there is a clear indication that there is nothing good we have that we have not received from God. When humans bless each other, it typically means that we have done something kind to each other, that we have done something to fill some component of need that another person has. That's why we, when we thank someone and we say, you really blessed me, what we're saying is that you've done something that I needed. You've, you've, you've filled, you've supplied some kind of need that I have. It can also refer simply to wishing well for someone else, which is why if we say, bless you, after someone sneezes, we're not really doing much for them. We're just hoping that they're okay, and maybe they'll never sneeze again. <laughs> when God blesses mankind, it carries with it the idea of undeserved favor that most evidently comes from God. For example, Numbers 6, 24 to 27 reveals this and a benediction that Israel received from God through Moses and Aaron, says the Lord, bless you. And by the way, Lord there is Yahweh. Yahweh, bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This blessing from God is manifestly gracious, and it is again interwoven with the personal name Yahweh. But when we bless God, do we supply some kind of need that he has? Do we wish good things for him? Do we do something that is gracious to him? Do we put our names, that is, our character on him? Beyond passages like the end of Romans 11, where Paul says, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? From which there is a clear implication, no one has repaid God. There are clues within the first few verses of Psalm 103 that indicate blessing God does not mean any of those things. Because the reason that we're blessing God is because he has supplied some need that we have, not the other way around. In other words, David tells his soul to bless God not because he intends to supply some need God has, but because God has supplied every need that David has. Therefore, I agree with John Piper when he says, quote, to bless God means to recognize his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it, end quote. To simplify that, blessing God is a combination of thanking him and praising him. It means to express gratitude and worship simultaneously as we see who he is. 
In the context of Psalm 103 and David's usage of the name Yahweh, David intends to communicate that we thank and praise God for all he has done in connection with his personal covenant faithfulness and love toward us. And now we turn to the character of man as it relates to thanksgiving. David tells his own soul not to forget all of Yahweh's benefits. Now, why would David do this? Why speak to his own soul? A very clear implication is that David tells his own soul not to forget because his soul both has the capacity to forget and actually does forget what God has done. Now, there's a kind of forgetfulness that simply means not remembering a thing. It means that something has slipped from our memory in such a way that it negatively impacts our capacity to behave in accord with that thing. So if I forget the keys for my car, it negatively impacts my ability to relate to my car. If I forget my password to my account, it negatively impacts my ability to log in. If I forget my wife, it negatively impacts everything in my life. (laughs) If our souls fail to remember what God has done, how can we be thankful and praise him for what he has done? How will we delight in God for what he has done if we don't even know what he's done? So that's the first layer of why David tells his soul not to forget. But there is another more egregious kind of forgetfulness that the Bible speaks of. Judges 3.7 gives an example. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. And Moses speaks to Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 17 to 18 and says about the nation, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. This kind of forgetfulness is a willful rejection of moral and spiritual truth in which our thanksgiving and worship are directed not to God, but to created things. Paul makes the same point in Romans 1.21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There were people who had a knowledge of God in one sense, but had forgotten about him in another sense. There were people who knew that God existed, but their actions displayed the opposite. There were people who perceived the character of God through creation and knew they ought to worship him, but they shackled such knowledge under chains in the dungeon of their folly and threw away the key so that they should never come to bless God. And who are these people? Paul indicates a few verses earlier in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The people who knew God but failed to give thanks to him, to worship him, to bless him, are those people who suppressed the truth of God in their pursuit 
of unrighteousness. Now, lest we think that this describes some segment or subgroup of humanity, consider how Paul progresses in Romans 1 from verses 16 and 17 to verse 18 and following. In verses 16 and 17, he says that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then in the very next sentence, he describes who those people are and what they are like who do not live by faith. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, Paul is saying this, humans in general, not some subgroup, are composed either of the righteous who live by faith in the gospel of God, or they are composed of the ungodly who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness and have no faith in God. Therefore, if you are not among the righteous who live by faith, you are suppressing the truth of God. And shocking as it is to self-righteous hearts, Paul says in verse 21 that one of the defining characteristics of those who suppress the truth of God is that they fail to give him thanks. Thanklessness and ingratitude then are at the center of the godless lives of unbelievers. In the lives of the ungodly, thanklessness precedes the many sins that Paul lists later in Romans 1, among which are idolatry, impurity, dishonorable passions, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossiping, slander, hatred, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, invention of evil, disobedience to parents, and approval of wrongdoing. To say it another way, this multiplicity of sins flows from a heart that will not give thanks to God. We know that thanklessness precedes these things because Paul shows a progression of depravity by speaking of thanklessness in verse 21 and then saying, therefore, in verse 24, and for this reason in verse 26, and since in verse 28. His point is this, out of the thankless heart, the heart that willfully forgets God, the heart that refuses to bless God, the heart that does not live by faith, come all kinds of corruption. Is this not why Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? It is important to note what such ingratitude looks like. It is not merely the presumptive individual who responds with an indifferent grunt when he receives something kind. It is not only the person who grumbles, though he has received something good. It is not simply the one who refuses to express thankfulness in words or action to the one who has provided a blessing. Now, Jesus states in Matthew 15, 8, that there is a giving of thanks that happens but is not true because it is corrupted by an unbelieving heart. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus is saying that there is a way we can act out the motions of thanksgiving while being far from the heart of thanksgiving. 
As Pastor Tim mentioned last week regarding Luke 18, that is why the Pharisee who thanked God that he was not like other men was actually exalting himself rather than humbling self. And the tax collector who cried out for mercy was the one who was humbling himself. The Pharisee was expressing a false gratitude that came from a heart that was far from God. Because the Pharisee was trusting in his own righteousness rather than God's righteousness, the thanksgiving that he expressed was self-centered and unrighteous rather than pleasing to God. Therefore, David tells his soul not to forget all of Yahweh's benefits. He knows that he has the propensity to a thankless heart and through it all sorts of wickedness. The remainder of Psalm 103 and the rest of this sermon focuses largely on aspects of God's saving work in us as believers. There are a couple reasons for this. The first one is that salvation is the chief of God's benefits, and more than any deeds of common grace, it particularly displays the worthiness of God to receive our thanksgiving. Secondly, salvation is the means by which we can praise God. Salvation provides the basis for our gratitude and empowers it. To say it yet another way, the saving work of God will bring about thanksgiving from those who have been saved because that's part of what it means to be saved. To say the opposite, if you are not living by faith in God, you cannot express genuine thanks to God for anything he has done. This is why Paul says at the end of Romans 14, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So let's start at the beginning of the process of salvation. When were you saved? Now, I know a lot of times if you're in school and and the teacher asks a question, you know, they might say, this isn't a trick question, just give me your best answer, but I'm going to let you know this is kind of a trick question. (laughs) The most common answer to this question will involve going back to a specific time in our lives when we came to faith in God. Typically, this means that someone prayed a prayer, they started to listen to more of God's word. They would uh, involve themselves in daily Bible reading, and they would go to church and be part of that community of believers. Now, I think that kind of prayer, I think we can recognize that simply praying a prayer doesn't necessarily mean that someone is saved. But At the same time, God, of course, calls us to come to him in prayer and to confess that he is Lord. But we would point probably, at least, even if we don't have a specific time in our lives where we can say, this is when I got saved, we we probably would point to uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we're saying that there's evidence that we're saved because of the fruit of the Spirit. But let me ask the question again. When were you saved? The question is often interpreted to mean, when did you come to faith in God? But I think there is an even more foundational answer to the original question than simply discussing when we came to faith. Consider Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. It says, blessed or praised, thanked 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then jump ahead to verse 11 of Ephesians 1. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God elected some men to salvation, not because they were especially good or especially bad or anywhere else along that moral scale nor because they were either useful or worthless to him or in the world's eyes, nor because they chose him first, nor because of anything in them whatsoever, but only because of God's mercy and grace. Which is to say, there is a sense in which we were saved before we ever came into existence. Though the evidence of this work of God always manifests itself in faith in the believer. This is part of why Paul says in Romans 8, 28 to 30, that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a sense in which being predestined means we have already been glorified because of the sureness of the grace of God. David's statement in Psalm 103, 17, that God's steadfast love is from everlasting, is about this predestining work of God. God chose you, believer, before the foundation of the world because of the depth of love he has for you and because of the passion he has to, for the display and exaltation of his glory. Paul explicitly states in Ephesians 1.16 that he gives thanks to God for his saving work. And we ought to gladly embrace the reality that God is predestined for salvation those who believe. Consider another facet of God's salvation, the gospel call, which is the hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ's saving work proclaimed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be of its power. For the word of the cross, which is the preaching of the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's power is at work in the preaching of the good news, and it is by God's grace that you are able to hear the gospel. Paul indicates in Romans 10 that not everyone hears the gospel. The people that hear the gospel are those who have someone sent to preach it to them. If you have heard the gospel, thank God. Further, Scripture reveals the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to bring spiritually dead people to life. Consider Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, starting in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know 
where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The only way we receive spiritual life is by the Holy Spirit providing it to us by his power. Consider what this phrase means, to be born again. When you first came into this world by physical birth, did you play any role in your birth whatsoever? From conception through the pregnancy to the time of your birth, the entirety of the role that you played in being born was receiving everything you needed from someone else. You didn't provide anything in return. And you couldn't stop it. When the Holy Spirit causes someone to be born again, it works the same way. Everything we need to be born again, God supplies. There is nothing that we bring to the table. From the point of bringing us to spiritual life and causing our faith to be born, we do nothing except receive. Those who are parents here will know most fully the extent of such care and concern for helpless children who supply you with nothing you need and receive everything they need from you. We have no right to do anything but be thankful to God, to praise God for his mighty work in us. Moreover, David highlights in Psalm 103, Yahweh's work of justification, which is God's declaration that a sinner is not guilty. And even more, that the same sinner is righteous in God's sight. He says in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The wonder of God's justifying work is that our sins no longer condemn us and they no longer belong to us because God has removed them as far away from us as they can be removed. Verse 17 indicates that it is God's own righteousness that he provides in tandem with his steadfast love. So where have your self-righteousness and filthy rags gone Where is your confidence in yourself fled away to? The Lord God, Yahweh is his name, has stripped you bare of your unholiness. He has taken every thankless word, every grumbling thought, every ungrateful deed. And rather than holding them against you on a ledger sheet of guilt, he has nailed them to the cross. But though he has stripped you, you do not stand unclothed before God. We do not come before a holy God, incapable and unequipped to enjoy his presence because of the burning glory that surrounds him. No, you stand before God as a believer in clothes of righteousness by faith in Christ, and only those who believe in faith can know such righteousness and life. Paul describes this wonder as a free gift in Romans 5. Even three-year-olds know that when you get a gift, you say thank you. 
You thank the giver. You express delight and gratitude to the giver. But we still sin. So why do you continue to believe? Why don't you fall away and make a shipwreck of your faith? Some might argue that we continue to believe by mustering up the faith in our own hearts, hoping that we might not fall away from the faith. We work up the strength to steel ourselves against the onslaught of unbelief that wages war against our souls. But Paul retorts in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you being perfected by the flesh? We do not persevere in our faith because of our strength. We continue in faith the very same way we came to believe, by the Spirit. Consider also Philippians 2, 12 to 14. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Next sentence, do all things without grumbling or questioning. This idea of thankfulness comes up again. And it is in response to God working in us for his good pleasure that we are to live and behave with total thankfulness in our hearts. Again and again and again, at every step of the salvation process, we are never excused from feasting at the table of thanksgiving so that we might engorge ourselves on some meal of ingratitude. No, plate after plate is piled high and full and placed before us so that we might feast on the goodness of God rather than running to the rations of sin. And a day is coming when we will feast in the presence of God. Some might think of this day as the last step of salvation, the final stage of our salvation process. But there is a sense in which it is the true beginning of our salvation, when we will at last be with God and all of the believers rejoicing in heaven. And Revelation 19.1, it says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Now, if you don't know, I just want to pause here and say, Hallelujah. At the end of Hallelujah are the three letters J-A-H. Do you know what those stand for? They stand for the name of Yahweh. Hallelujah means praise be to Yahweh. So every time that you sing hallelujah like we did this morning in a song, you're using the personal name of God that he has provided to you that reminds you of his steadfast love. And so we cry out in heaven, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. And again in verse 6, 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. There is a twisted idea among a large swath of churchgoers today, especially in America, that you can live your best life now, as a popular title claims. No, this life for the believer is the worst life. One of the implications of giving thanks for God's saving work is that the gratitude God deserves at every moment from our hearts is a gratitude for things whose joy will be multiplied by 10,000 times 10,000 in the life to come, which is eternity with God. Meaning, when we as believers feel the deepest ecstasies of delight in God in this life, we should consider that such joys would feel like the basest and most menial sorrows in heaven by comparison. Because there is a weight of glory beyond all compare that awaits us in the presence of God. And the worst sorrows of this life, with all of their agony and soul-crushing horror, will for the believer be eclipsed in a moment by the highest praise and worship of our worthy God. Thankfulness for us now is something that we have to cultivate and grow. But thankfulness in heaven is something we will be incapable of restraining. It will flow unceasingly from our hearts like living waters cascading on for eternity. Praise God for who he is and what he has done when we consider then the nature of God's saving work in heaven and recognize that what he is doing now through his saving work in his children is but a glimpse of what he will do then, how can we not be grateful? Amazing grace, amazing grace has come to us. Uh, before I read this benediction here, um, I want to remind you all and, and actually ask that a couple of elders and some of the ladies in the past who've helped, if you could stand up here. We want to provide opportunity each week that if, if you have burdens on your heart that you can come talk to us. It doesn't have to be related to the sermon, um, but just we want to be here to minister to you if you need to talk to anyone about anything. Um, also, before I read this, just want to remind you too, before you walk out, uh, take note of the faces around you. Welcome each other. Uh, we have this opportunity to fellowship with each other here before we break off into our meal times as well. But hear these words as we conclude this time together this morning. Now, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.